Welcome to the Be In Cyber podcast. The idea of this podcast is to showcase a diverse range of careers in cybersecurity. Our guest today is Brian Kavanagh, Cybersecurity Operations Manager at Railpan, and he's going to tell us about his career. So today we've got Brian Kavanagh from Railpan, who's a Security Operations Manager. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for coming on to the Be In Cyber podcast. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Very, very welcome. So tell me about you, Brian. What's what's your background? What do you do at the moment? So I'm a cybersecurity operations manager, uh, which sounds fancier than it actually is. It covers kind of all the length and breadth of cybersecurity, as well as managing a cybersecurity operations team. And the idea really is to make, obviously, the organizations wherever I work as secure as possible, but working with a, a number of other teams across the organization, whether that's the GRC side of things, whether that's a compliance perspective, or whether that's just within IT itself, to make that organization kind of do security by design from the outset. That's a really broad role. Um, so it's not so much a SOC manager, it's the full operations of security management that you're doing. Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting because no two days are the same. And I think most people would say that whether they're in IT or cybersecurity anyway. Yeah, 100%. I think that's what's so fascinating about the industry. No two days are ever going to be the same. Okay, so tell me a bit about your background. How did you get to where you are today? Where did you sort of start out? So this is stereotypical. I think I started out from a service desk perspective and then kind of slowly but surely worked my way up through to like a second line type support role through to infrastructure. And then I was working at uh, an acute hospital trust. And that's kind of where I got interested in IT security, really. I went to various local kind of seminars and a couple of webinars and I kind of realized that there was quite a few things that we weren't doing. And even though I'd worked in IT for a while, I also realized I knew very little about the security aspects of things. So it was a massive eye opener. And from there, it kind of grew into a, from a wish list to an approach to then it turned into a strategy, which then I was able to kind of present with various other people to various boards at the trust, which then helped secure some funding. And during that time, maybe we were about halfway through that process and we were kind of just getting the the buy-in as, as it were for some of the spend that we needed to to kind of improve things. We were then hit by WannaCry. I was going to ask about WannaCry, NHS, around about that time. What was that like? Chaotic. Um, I remember people saying to me that they felt physically sick because we knew that there were quick decisions to be made. Life and death decisions as well. Well, not for us, fortunately, but we knew that it would have an impact on the services that the hospital run. So if you can't do bloods, you can't run a hospital. You can't do diagnostics, you can't run a hospital. Certainly not from a you know life and death situation. So we did have lots of people coming into us saying, what about this? What about that? And I think one of the scariest ones initially was what about ICU? You know, that's kind of intensive care. Luckily, because of the way the hospital was designed and also because of the the nature of uh, various things that were going on, actually, a lot of those things were safe because they weren't that type of operating system. So they weren't XP, they weren't Windows 7. We had various other things going on as well as kind of Linux based and Ubuntu and bits and pieces there. So that was quite good from that perspective as well. But also, yeah, it was just crazy because we had to make some very quick decisions decisions we knew some of the basic stuff like disconnecting off-site backups and then validating them and so we had them but working with everybody and actually the the best thing about that is we got support from lots of different teams 
even finance were walking around the hospital unplugging devices. Yeah, so it was a, a scary time. Lots of things that we probably learned from that in terms of lessons learned was phenomenal. It was just the biggest list you can imagine from a, a lessons learned perspective. But um, I remember getting the call. I was at a lunch and one of the second line guys says, oh, I've seen some ransomware on a device with this message and kind of, you know, telling me over the phone what it was like. And I said, you know, I'm on my way back now. Unplug the device. So, um, yeah, get it off the network as quickly as can. Um, and then very quickly we realized that that was, you know, spreading to various devices. But, yeah, we were very lucky in the sense that we were already um, in the midst of putting loads of things in place. There was lots of network segmentation, which definitely helped only traveled on one vlan for us it didn't jump across various other vlans so but it took us a while to obviously then assert and attest that that was the case um sending people home at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock at night to make sure that they were fresh for the next day to then come back in and making sure that we're all coordinating properly we had some people that were almost taking minutes utilizing whiteboards to say who was in who was out who was then coming in the next day and so on and so forth but yeah people kind of saying that they felt physically sick. One of the quickest things that we did collectively is we grabbed one of the devices. We had a separate device on what we called, you know, basic DSL line, dirty internet, um, where we uploaded a sample to Sophos. Uh, and I think, and I know we can kind of look back that through um, rose-tinted glasses, but I think we did that definitely within a couple of hours to try and get a sample to Sophos in case there was uh, something else that they needed to, to kind of do to analyze in case, you know, other people hadn't got there yet. We didn't know what was going on. It's fast-moving. We were talking to other hospitals at the same time, disconnecting VPNs, because obviously we had connectivity to other hospitals, um, working out what they did, what they'd seen, trying to learn lessons from them, whether they were affected or impacted, and then that, how, how that related to us and the services. Then we fed that back up to various senior management who then had their various leadership of commands. So yeah, a very chaotic time, a really stressful good couple of weeks before, you know, lots of services were then brought back online. And I could imagine that was quite traumatic as well for, for people who've been through that. Did, did the hospital offer any kind of trauma counselling afterwards? Because I can imagine from a mental health perspective, that must be horrendous. That That is a real crisis. Well, that's really interesting, actually, because I've spoken to other people that have had various incidents and attacks in different organisations over the years. And it's one of the things that does seem to be forgotten about. People take things personally. And I know that there'll be somebody that either in a phishing email or something like that, you've got to think about how that person feels. Um, the analogy I heard years ago was if a shopkeeper is broken into and somebody steals all the files as well as money and everything else, then there's quite a lot of empathy for the shopkeeper because, you know, they've got an alarm, they've got keys, whatever. But actually, it might just be a simple you know, it could have left the door unlocked, could be a smash window, who knows what. But the analogy for somebody with a phishing email is, oh, well, you did something wrong and you were, you're you almost stupid. They don't get that same level of empathy. And I, and I know that people have kind of... The user is the weakest link sort of thing. Yeah, and it's the wrong terminology, really, because if everything was that good, and you've probably seen the same sort of memes, if everything was that sophisticated, we'd be catching them using the technical tools that we've got to do that, to do that filtering. So there's always um, ways around those algorithms. There's always different techniques and, you know, social engineering type things. So I don't think that people do think about the people that are involved. The scariest one I've heard was where somebody had been involved and I think they thought they're compromised or their account had been compromised as part of this whole attack chain and they disappeared for over 24 hours. Nobody knew where they were. So nobody could get in contact. Luckily, everything turned out okay. But you can imagine the team and how other people felt about that situation. So no, we didn't get offered counselling, but we did get really good support from the hospital themselves. They were chucking food at us so that it could kind of keep us nourished and all that kind of stuff. So that was great. And we did get some additional time back and some time off to try and, you know, recuperate. So that was thought about. So that was really good. But I think... um 
talking about it. We did manage to sort of have a bit of banter and uh, laughing and joke after things had kind of calmed down and stuff and um, and that kind of eased tensions. And I think as well, the whole community was behind you. There were, it wasn't just hospitals, everybody, a lot of industries got hit, NCSE put support. And I think it was Marcus, can't think for the life of me what his surname is. Is it Hutchinson? Hutchinson, yeah. I think he did something to change the code. Yeah, well, there was, um, I, I, and actually, I've listened to various diaries and, and all those kind of things with that, and also the um, the I'm trying to think of the author now, Jeff White. I've I've listened to him as well. So yeah, so the, the basically within the code, they'd had this uh, kill switch, which he'd been able to analyze quite quickly, and he realized that if he registers that domain, then it would stop the spread. Um, so that was something that he was obviously praised for, and rightly so. It was a really good spot, and he did that relatively quickly, really. But yeah, the, it did feel a little bit strange in the sense that we knew that there was going to be some empathy and sympathy for you know people in that situation, and albeit you know there was still lots of information around the the number of cancelled appointments and all those kind of scary stats after after the event in terms of potentially you know people cancer treatment and all of those kind of things. So. But knowing that we did the best we could with the information we had in front of us and, um, yeah, we were able to get back up and running relatively quickly, considering that the nature of the event was quite rewarding in the long run. And then those lessons learned as well. OK, so then what was next? You you left the hospital as a security lead? Yeah, so I, I was then, um, and the problem was really is because of travelling to the hospital with the commute and the work-life balance and also the, the ability to learn more from a bigger organisation. So I then moved on to Aviva, who then, so I've gone from being almost the sole kind of security person with the support, obviously, of lots of IT people at the hospital to then over to Aviva, who then had, a, you know, 220 people in their CISO department, five people just looking at DLP, for example, or something along those lines. And so very kind of heavily focused on security, uh, rightly so, obviously, from, you know, protecting insurance, um, all that kind of financial, that data, all the customer data. Obviously, they've got to be uh, secure as possible. GDPR, all, all those kind of fines and everything else that could happen, as well as the reputation. So, yeah, it's a huge risk for any organization, obviously. But so I thought, oh, this is great because then they've got red teams. They've got, you know, all these things that I'm going to, they've got threat intelligence teams and I'm going to learn all of these things. And then, I, you know, realize actually I've been very pigeonholed and very compartmentalized from the from the rest. I mean, we did interact with those teams but I kind of went into the vulnerability management side of things which was also equally fascinating but very kind of process driven from a perspective as we were trying to you know hold people and different departments and teams to account for vulnerability management and actually a lot of that was interesting but it wasn't really what I wanted to do I'd gone from having all of this level of access and control and being involved in all of these projects and design and strategy to then looking after something which was quite narrow to me which was vulnerability management so then there was an opportunity for me to join a company called Davis Group who are like an insurance claims company I mean they do lots more than that but an insurance claims company where I then had the ability to have my input listened to you know from a policy perspective from a procedure perspective improving their controls working with other people you know slightly bigger team than obviously just the hospital because then you've got you know your first second third line support but also other people in cybersecurity. so opportunity to make real improvements and uh and we did and um I'm, I'm sure that the guys are still doing great improvements there now and um 
that was an opportunity for me to get more into more of the Azure side of things and the Microsoft stack that way. I mean, from my infrastructure background, I've gone from what they call, you know, tin really, you know, physical devices, physical data rooms or data centers, whatever you want to call them, and going around, you know, with physical cables and all that kind of stuff, really um, touched on various things with Office 365 and, and some of those solutions, but not really to the extent that I had with things like Davis Group and looking at things from a, an auditing perspective as well. So uh, because they work with lots of insurance companies and large insurance companies, lots of security questionnaires, due diligence, audits, those kind of things. So supporting that. So that was really good as well, because it's something I hadn't really been involved with. So the GRC side of things from a NHS is completely different to the, the, those side of things. So that's kind of where I moved on to there. I think there's quite an important thing to talk about there. I think the company culture and the environment and, and the scope, you know, when you're looking at roles, it, these are important questions because although a role might look shiny and interesting, actually, when you get inside, understanding or well, what's your remit, who are your stakeholders, who are you able to work with? It's an important question to ask, particularly for people who are considering the next role. It's not just what the job spec looks like. Sometimes that job spec's two, three years old. It's not real or it's not really up to date. Um, important questions for, for when you're interviewing and considering a role. Yeah, and, and uh, definitely. And um, we always say, so having been on both sides of the fence, interviewing and interviewer, you definitely learn from both sides, obviously, depending on your circumstances. But you certainly from interviewing somebody else and then realizing how they react or they answer questions certainly um, makes a, a difference to how you approach things. We always say it's a two-way process. You know, you've got to like us, like the role, understand whether it's the right kind of fit for you, whether that's culturally, whether that's location, as well as the the scope of what's kind of included in that. So make the most of that opportunity, write down questions before you go into an interview of what, if somebody really had to kind of press you to say, do you want this role? And you're kind of on the fence because there's pros and cons. What would be the the gotcha that would stop you from going for that role? Or what would be the the incentive to go, yeah, actually, that's a really good fit. I've got access to uh, a bigger team or I've got access to these tool sets. I'm going to learn and grow much more rapidly over here, over this role, over something completely different. So it is definitely a two-way process. And you've got to look at that and ask those questions. Yeah, and it's aspirational as well. Okay, a, a role might be great on paper now, but what's the next two years look like for you? Have you got an opportunity to grow and develop? And it's not, location is so important. We, we know as recruiters, as soon as organization x has decided it's now four days in the office oh suddenly our phones are blowing up because people are returning our calls and you know they want to know what else is out there so location is important and not everybody wants to be 100 remote there's other places where it's five days in the office and if you're a junior that might be right for you if you're going to learn and develop from others but it's the training it's the scope it's the team actually and if you're always unsure you can always ask to can I informally meet some of my new potential teammates um, and see what they're like? Because actually, sometimes there's only the hiring manager in the interview process, but you might not get that much interaction with them day to day. It'll be your teammates. So it's always good to do your own research on who works there and what's their background. And LinkedIn's a fantastic tool for that. Yeah, I agree. And I think if you if you've got the opportunity to to do that, that's uh, a very valuable thing. I have done it before at the hospital, actually, before when I was interviewed there for the second interview, and I did say, "Can I can I have a look at the office space? Can I have a look around? Can I can I meet some of the team?" Because you can pick up certain vibes. You're not going to get everything, but you'll you'll kind of pick up certain cultural 
aspects and whether it's a, a really cluttered or messy office and do you get a feel for it being chaotic does everybody look stressed or under the cosh or are people too jovial are they you know being completely the other way or it does it look like there's a nice bunch of friendly people in a nice friendly clean atmosphere you know all those kind of things because i've worked in, the reason i say that is because i've worked in various porter cabins and they've been from one extreme to another they've been almost like um uh, like a three-star hotel type thing because the plush carpets and everything else and then the other way around where actually it looks like it's probably um it's had its day and it should really be a shed or something but yeah i think if you've got the opportunity to even if you're doing that interview remotely there, there's no harm in asking what what is the recruiter or the hiring manager going to say no of course not they're going to say well let's try and organize some time and we'll get somebody on the call if they're not available now or or another time yeah i think that's really important you've got to know what suits you i've been working remote now for over three years it works for me it works for my lifestyle it works for things like you know school pickups and all those kind of things but my boys are now older so i'm less kind of restricted in that way probably not the right word but you know what i mean and actually it works for me my youngest son really struggles at school because he hates school don't know why he hates school just absolutely hates it detests it but from an academic perspective, he's thriving. So it shows that probably it's the environment that doesn't necessarily suit him. So if we're we're not all the same, there's neurodiverse people out there, people work differently. This whole shift of moving people back into the office, I think is, as you've said, it kind of your phone then lights up because people don't want to do that now. There is um, this ability to be flexible and work remotely. We shouldn't really be focusing on this presenteeism and uh, all that kind of culture. I think that's very old fashioned. If there's that flexibility and you get people and you get more out of people, then why wouldn't we do that? Yeah, it's a really unusual market at the moment. People aren't necessarily moving unless it's 5K more, 10K more because it's, it's so uncertain or unless they're really, really pissed off with, oh, suddenly there's a back to the office Monday. Oh, actually, well, no, I will consider my options now. So it is, in my opinion, it's short-sighted to do a blanket change of policy without consulting teams. There's nothing wrong with having, okay, the sales team want to be in three days a week or four days a week because they enjoy that, but the tech team want to be at home and do a couple of days a month. It is more difficult to manage, but if all of your teams suddenly start downing tools, you know, you might think we're in a short supply of talent right now, but that means the the poll is in the candidate's hands they can choose where they want to work still there are still plenty of opportunities around and it's still very much very very hard to find skilled people so why would you suddenly try and piss them all off I, I don't get it. I understand there's business decisions to be made sometimes. If you've got really expensive office space, you're going to want to be using it if you've got long-term leases. But that's only a five-year or a 10-year plan. Really, we should be looking at recruitment plans. What's going to happen in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years if we're not building people up and bringing new people into the talent pipeline? If suddenly you can't find people for your projects, then the projects can't happen. Does that then mean that you are more at risk if your teams are overstretched? There's not enough people. There's not enough resources. Surely that increases the threat from a security perspective. Um, it is is an unusual market, and for me, it's, I, I don't mind it. It means suddenly we get loads more candidates that are interested in moving. But from a business perspective, sometimes there are big repercussions from people making these decisions. It's certainly interesting from my perspective and who we've interviewed certainly over the last year or two and the various reasons why you know people are looking to move on there's there's numerous aspects but i have seen a lot of threads on social media including linkedin around people looking to move because of the four days five days back in the office it doesn't suit everybody 
and I think it's interesting to see those organizations that went down to four day a week and in, in the UK that did the trial. I think there was quite a few couple of hundred or so and productivity went up. And I think uh, I think there was a stat around about 92 percent were going to continue it. That's def- definitely I'd like a guess from that sort of space <laughs> to come and talk to me about what it what that was like. I think the problem that we have is the new generation that are coming in. They're not going to go with those old ways of working from the 80s. They, they're demanding flexibility. They're demanding challenge, technical challenge, professional challenge and growth. They're demanding good causes that they want to work for. They want to be part of a team and a uh, mission. That's really important to this generation that's coming up. They want causes that they care about. If these are the type of people that you're trying to attract and then suddenly it's, you know, 8.30 to 5.30 in an office environment, you've got to commute to get there. It's We're not thinking about the next generation that's coming up. Um, and they're all very, very tech savvy. I mean, my three-year-old knows how to use YouTube Kids and how to screen through and how to take my phone and get to what she wants to. They're growing up with technology. So think about the solutions and the problems that they can solve. So why are we not finding ways to access this talent from early years really you know why are we not looking at going to schools to give them technical challenges at high school that they can really switch them on to tech there's there's so much we can do to attract those sort of people and my worry is that when these this generation comes through in 20 30 years they're going to be completely different the world of work is going to be completely different from what it looks like now rather than the board members that do come from a different time and a different culture that aren't necessarily moving forward with how the world of work is shifting. Absolutely. There's how we consume news and information. And I I say this to a lot of people, if you get a newsletter, you might read a little bit of it, depending on the topic or or your interest. So, but my children sort of, you know, they're kind of receiving information via memes and and GIFs and one-liners and things. So it it is different. And I've seen even over the last five years or so, they call it obviously the gig economy, which does work a lot for young people, whether that's kind of driving around delivering food or delivering parcels and choosing what shifts they do or don't work. That's kind of seems to be the the shift at the moment, but where's that going to go? And if you've got sites like Glassdoor or Indeed where you've got reviews for the organizations that you've kind of worked for for that culture and there's comments on there around the culture of the massive shift people think that the move back into offices is because they don't feel trusted or they're not going to be as productive and on all of those things like everything there's pros and cons isn't there if you can get that lovely balance and it works for the majority of your organization great but there are certain situations where I can't imagine certainly companies further north are going to attract that talent for some of the technical roles that they want because some of the younger people want to be in the bigger cities they want to be in central London or they certainly certainly want to to get that salary in that range so it's it's got to be competitive in other ways so actually can you then provide other incentives such as partly remote working or fully remote working as well as you know other opportunities and development um can you attract the talent that way that's the competitive edge i think sometimes yeah 100 percent. manchester at the minute is buoyant we've seen a lot of redundancies coming out of london and people moving out of london because of the cost of living if you are struggling to find talent being able to attract talent from anywhere in the uk which is also competitive from a salary perspective massively opens up your talent pool 
because suddenly you're able to attract people from Hull or Norwich or Scotland or Newcastle or it just completely changes and there's so many different tech hubs now I still class Manchester as the second city rather than Birmingham but that's because we're sort of based out of Manchester but there's yeah a hundred percent and what's right for one isn't right for the other you're never going to please everybody but at least if you consult everybody and they feel like they understand and they're part of that process they understand why and that they are trusted and the business reasons behind it but I can't see unless you are training juniors is the only thing I can see a, a cause for why you need people in the office five days a week unless it's a secure site unless there's massively critical information, there's a breach, then you're, you know, all working together, being able to communicate and see each other. It's an all hands sort of thing. That's just my opinion. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of with you on that one as well. And I, th- I think, like I said, with the kind of neurodiversity, some people are, that they mask, right? So they can come across as an extrovert, but they're not necessarily an extrovert. And you're not necessarily blanket extrovert in all situations. I can talk the hind legs off a donkey in certain situations, but then there'll be other situations where actually I'm, I'm probably a bit apprehensive or or not a, a, a an extrovert. So if you don't tap into that as well, what if there are people that have got really good memories, abilities with you know numbers or maths or whatever it might be, that you could tap into, that you could utilize because they're thinking completely different to the way that you think that can provide that element of diversity in your team to complement what you're already doing. Why wouldn't you tap into that? So I think having the blend and having the mixture of what people want to do, whether you've got the socialites that want to be in the office two or three days a week or whatever that might be, or you've got those introverts that just actually they don't interact well with people in the same way. And I say well, but well for them rather than, you know, right or wrong. It's um my eldest son is just been diagnosed, he's autistic. Um, And actually, he has to have very specific instructions for certain things. So being in an office where there's that social interaction, I know that would completely put him on edge. But give him a situation where he's communicating via WhatsApp to me or something different, it's completely different. Able to do it, runs with it. You know, I can tap into that. If that was somebody employing my son in that capacity, he's much more likely to do it remotely, certainly from, from his perspective anyway. Yeah, that's a really good point. Sometimes offices are noisy. Sometimes, you know, they're not set up to be friendly to everybody's preferred working ways. There's also the argument around the tech stack. Some people have amazing, you know, mission control systems set up at home with three screens and super fast computers. And they're not going to get that with your standard office PC. It's understanding the technology that's needed as well for people to work effectively. I know I no means technical, but I have to have my two screens to feel like I'm working effectively if I've got multiple things open well that leads us nicely on to your current role then so obviously you talked about that at the start but tell me more about your teams then and how that sort of worked and how your career shifted really because you were a lead in your previous role and now you're a manager how did that shift happen for you and what are the things that you've learned from that I think I'm very fortunate to kind of work at an organization that um, has that whole approach of security top down the buy-in and the culture is right from the execs to the you know to the board right down to everybody as a as an employee so when you're doing that you don't necessarily have the same challenges that you do when it's the other way around and you're trying to justify security and controls and various aspects of that in all my roles really 
like say right from the, the hospital trying to do that well this is why we're doing this this is why we're adding value and i think i remember one of the the execs at the hospital saying to me at the time oh do you think we're just kind of being kind of too paranoid and are we doing this because we you know we've seen lots of things going on in the industry and in the press type type thing and kind of you know and i said well no it's a question of kind of and i, I know it's a cliche term and i do hate it but it is a question of when or if not and i think that's something that's really important the culture where I work at the moment is fantastic and it's easy for me to say because obviously I work there but having that ability to go and talk to different people in the organization about their challenges and about what things that they want to improve upon is great being in an interview and working out the direction and the passion from people on that interview was second to none I've, I've not experienced anything like it and then also having the ability to um have a half decent budget always helps to kind of you know get the the right tools in place it's not always about the technical controls though we know the kind of administration controls are also there but we did a, an away day as a, a department earlier in the year to kind of meet up to, to kind of go through the plans and, and the roadmaps for the year but also it was a lot more than that it allowed us to um to kind of get to know each other a bit more um so that's kind of where that blend i think works where we talk about the remote working but it made us kind of think about things from um the the whole kind of personality traits thing we did this whole strength scope thing which kind of was really fascinating to kind of see how what motivates other people what makes people tick and and we're very there's loads of things that we do that i think are fantastic that other organizations may do um in various guises but i've not seen it to the level where i am i am now we do these various kind of lunch and learn so if we're doing any new technology or adapting something or changing something then we'll do these lunch and learns and we'll get people on to ask questions to give a high level overview to try and put that across to the to the audience so it doesn't have to be overly technical but you can say you know what the challenges are and what you're trying to to overcome and what you're trying to achieve and then we record them and we share them so if somebody misses it you know because of annual leave or whatever then they can kind of watch them retrospectively and um and then i'm trying to push more and more for secondment so we've got people coming across from different teams um but i'm supported massively in those areas i come up with these ideas and like yeah absolutely sounds great run with it so having like you said uh, very early on having that culture to be able to to do that and drive that direction is really great but also i'm in norwich there's not a lot of opportunities for cybersecurity, even in norfolk i would have to at least travel to the likes of Colchester, maybe further, maybe depending on, yeah, maybe Chelmsford, you know, or anywhere. I'm beginning to sound like I'm just know the seas because obviously Cambridge as well. But but all of those on the way down to London for, on the train, those would be the organisations that I would I would have to travel to if they didn't have those remote opportunities. And at the time before the the pandemic and stuff, they were few and far between. Then obviously there was a massive spike because of the pandemic, and then obviously like you say, there's a bit of a shift now going back the other way, but. It works for me. Um, it works for my kind of work-life balance. I'm very career hungry. So it was an opportunity for me to obviously progress. Really passionate about what I do. Um, if I can teach, grow, develop, support other people, whoever is interested, I will do so to the nth degree because it's I get a great kick out of it and a great buzz out of it. So it's a bit selfish in the sense that actually, if I can see somebody grow and develop, that's phenomenal for me. It just kind of says, well, I've helped them become what they wanted to become i've helped them achieve some of their ambitions or their goals no matter how small that might be so that is a, a good cultural fit for me as well at, at Railpen. so that's what i really like 
It sounds great because you're building security ambassadors as well within the business, even if they're not in the security team. So comments work really well. And also it's, you know, building a team isn't always about hiring externally. It's promoting from within and bringing people from other areas. I know we talked before, and that's something that's quite important to you to help people to develop. What sort of drives you then? What's what's your biggest driver? Is it that career development? Is it that constant improvement? You know, you, you've obviously very driven, you've constantly progressed. Have you always been that way? Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that I did as a child is I took things apart because I wanted to know how it worked. And so my brain taps into that. And um, and, I, and I've, I've said to my wife, actually, um, because of various kind of OCD traits that I've got and various attributes. I've never been uh, fully diagnosed, but I, if I, if I was, I'm sure I'd be, you know, there on the spectrum or thereabouts. And I think that that is what I tap into when I'm looking at whether that's, you know, on-prem solutions or SaaS solutions or whatever security controls and thinking about that, wanting to know how it works. And you look at the plethora of skills and people just on social media and on Twitter and on LinkedIn and how, remarkable that they are and how they thought about something and and the the level of well intelligence is probably the, not the right word but you know what i mean the skills and the creativity yeah and problem solving that they've got kind of motivates and inspires me as well i kind of go oh, actually how did he do that and i want to read up on that now so i want to know how that works but also is that a mechanism for a weakness or a security configuration or control wherever i'm working can i then go and take that and go right okay let's look at the mitre attack framework let's look at the the tactics or the techniques or the procedures is there anything else that we can put in place to prevent or detect some of that activity so i think the fascination and the curiosity drives that but equally, on the other side of the coin, I'm very creative. I mess about with Photoshop. I mess about with green screen stuff with my kids. We've done all sorts of daft things with videos, um, uh, as well as painting. Are you telling me you're a TikToker? No, 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 not at all. No, uh, no, I, I, uh, well, I can't get into that in terms of various applications that I do or don't want on my phone. Um, and, it, and in some ways, you know, they're, they're all as bad as each other in terms of what they do, do and don't, you know, take from your device in terms of the information and the, all the contacts, all the apps that are installed. But yeah, so, but I dabble with stuff. So when I turned 40, I tried to do 40 things for 40, but unfortunately the, the pandemic hit. But I did, I did um, a silversmithing, I did some pottery, I did some blacksmithing, I did some glass blowing, and then just dabbled with a few bits and pieces at home and stuff like that with resin and artwork. And I've got a laser engraver. And so I'm always doing something, whether it's upcycling furniture or painting or doing something like that. It's just, A, I want to know how it works. B, I don't want, don't necessarily need to be an expert in, in any of it. It's just the experience of the either the escapism or the creativity, some of that creativity then taps into, oh, I wonder if we can do this with this tool. I wonder if we can get more out of it. So it's multifaceted, I think, from that perspective. But that's kind of what motivates me. And what really motivates me for trying to push more towards this whole kind of neurodiverse thing is that we are that world. We we are, that's that's who we are as the human race, right? So why wouldn't we take the best from whether that's ethnicity or whether that's gender or whether that's anything really, whether that's uh, even uh, economic background? You know, I'm from that economic background where actually we were kind of what you call council house type traditional backgrounds where I probably statistically wasn't meant to have a half decent career and all of those kind of things. But 
I think you've got to push against those stereotypical norms and those labels and everything else and I think you've got to see the person for who they are and if they're passionate and if somebody's interviewing if you've got the opportunity I know sometimes there's a demand within recruitment because you need to hit there's so many times I hear that oh we need them to hit the ground running I get that but if there is an opportunity for you as a recruiter or an employer to give somebody an opportunity who is saying, oh, I, I check these blogs and I'm, I listen to these podcasts and I've done this in Azure and I've got this own, my own little lab set up at home, whatever it might be, if they've got that that you can tap into with that right passion, then you can teach the tech. Yeah, that's 100% what I say. Yeah, you can teach the tech. You can't teach that curiosity, that passion, that drive, that they are intrinsical. You know, you're built that way. You want it. And the important thing is that, like you've said there, you need that release, though, that you shouldn't just be working 80, 90 day, days a week. <laughs> 80, <laughs> I wish there was 90 days in a week. Uh, yes. 80, 90 hours a day. Um you need that release as well. And that's an important message that we're not just sweatshops for newbies coming in, that we're we're pushing them to also have that downtime. Yes, get really passionate about cyber and we, we want that passion, but also know when to switch off, you know, not when the battery's completely empty, when it's starting to deplete. Make sure you have those creative outlets and other ways to to outlet that passion. And I think we've got a responsibility as individuals, whether we are seen as, you know, management, senior management, whatever. I think you can all, anyone can be a leader. You can lead in anything. You can lead by, you know, enthusiasm, passion or or whatever that might be. We need to make sure that we keep pushing that message and showing that culture and showing people that we're having downtime and that we're doing some of those things. Because, you know, if you kind of react to how other people react. So if you go and sit next to somebody in an office, you sit next to somebody who is a bit too laid back and a bit too kind of carefree and whatever, you kind of very quickly see other people sitting next to them, almost forming some of those habits. Equally, it's got to work the other way around. You know, if you've got that culture of, oh, actually, I didn't take all of my unlimited annual leave, you know, working for those organizations, I only took 10 days annual leave, like it's a bragging right last year, it becomes kind of counterproductive. Like we said, go down to four days a week and productivity improves. I wonder whether people have looked at the other way around, that you're working in the equivalent of six days a week, for example. I wonder whether anybody's done any studies around, actually, that's probably counterproductive. If you're tired, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to make bad decisions. Yeah, so I think we've got responsibility as individuals to kind of push back and say, actually, no, that, that's not the norm. We're work to live, not live to work yeah nobody says on the deathbed i wish i'd finished that form did that <laughs> did that extra thing in the office no one's sitting there going oh damn i didn't hit that target unless it's a personal target maybe but yeah 100 percent. so one sort of final question then for you what do you think what advice did you either have when you were developing in your career or what advice do you wish you had had Oh, that's a really interesting one. I, uh, okay, this is a really good point. I am a very confident person um, and I have this innate belief that I can go and do anything. I don't know where that comes from. And my wife and I laugh and joke about it on a regular basis because my mum mocked me many, many moons ago because I remember watching the Tour de France and they were cycling. I didn't think they were cycling very fast. And bear in mind i'm in my early teens at this point i'm going oh i could do that and then it became this laughing running joke of brian could do the tour de france for years and years and years so 
I think my younger version <laughs> didn't listen as much and probably didn't take on the advice as much as I probably could have done. Now, that being said, you get good and bad advice, right? So, but what I think you need to do, if you can, is listen to the advice and digest it, then process it to then say, well, is it good or is it bad? Or is there another advice that you can get from somebody else that kind of mirrors or matches that? So there's no harm in asking. So there's no stupid questions ever because nobody knows everything. You can go into any single room and not be the expert in anything. Even if you've done it for 50 years of your career, you you just, there's always going to be someone smarter in the room so just ask away if somebody laughs or mocks you or is silly because i've had that as well um i've gone into an office where the manager said what the fuck do you want and that was my second week so but i didn't let that put me off because i just thought well okay well that's the kind of personality that i'm dealing with i know that i'm not necessarily going to go to him for advice in future i'll go somewhere else so don't let things put you off Digest the device, if you, uh, the advice rather, if you can, from somebody and think about it rather than being dismissive. But if you can, again, also get some advice from someone else, then do that. It doesn't mean that what you're doing is wrong either, because that's the other thing is, is it just might not fit the particular piece of work or project that you're doing. And you'll learn from that. And I think if I could go back and tell myself, just listen that little bit more, not be quite so confident <laughs> Equally, it's good to learn from your mistakes and you learn a lot from them. But the other way around is actually, well, what if it saves you 20, 20 hours worth of work? <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's great advice. I think as well, sometimes realising that advice might be great, but it might not be great for you. There's more than one way of doing things. And I think sometimes we're very ab- absolutionist. I don't know if that's the right word in security. It depends is a phrase for a reason. You know, you can't apply the same security controls to an SME that you can to a bank. The security strategy is always going to be different. So the same for you can't apply what works. You can't just copy somebody else's working style if that's not been true to yourself. And how you learn will be different to how others learn. Everybody is different. And that's where, you know, ensuring that we are neurodiversity friendly, ensuring that everybody can be empowered to succeed in our organisation or our team is so important. And understanding that just because someone does it that way, that works for them. Take the bits that work for you, but doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah. Um, And that's also something else I'd heard is somebody said to me when I was at Aviva, just take the best from other people even if that's just you know taking snippets or one percent or two percent from what they what you kind of perceive of actually they handle that situation really well i'm going to take that on board if i'm ever in that situation you can learn from other people's mistakes um and then the other one which is probably a little bit not bullish but a little bit more kind of assertive in a way is never come off a meeting with actions without people assigned to them because if you've got those actions, there'll always be somebody on that meeting that's assuming that you're doing it. So that's the other one that um, I try to make sure that if there's actions, that there are kind of people responsible to to know what they're going to deliver as well. Because, again, they don't want to come back to the next meeting and say, well, sorry, I thought you were doing that and vice versa. So that's the other snippet that um, I've always taken with me. Is it Elon that will only ever attend a meeting with an agenda? Is that Elon Musk? I'm not sure. but It's def- definitely one of the famous business owners will only ever attend a meeting with an agenda, which actually is a good 
plan again it doesn't work for every meeting sometimes you have those off the shelf well we've we've, we've done something similar actually we've got a, a very simple email kind of template that we've got saved and it will say you know what what are you trying to achieve out of this um what is the the agenda is there any support in informational documents that we could read up beforehand because actually that you know how many memes have we seen where he says you know this meeting could have been an email so it does get you to think about it as the organizer doesn't it as well yeah if if you know something's going in the calendar it's got to got to have an agenda it will make you decide whether or not something needs to go in the calendar if you can sort it yourself with an email you might be able to then ascertain whether then you need to attend or whether you need to send somebody to you know delegate on your behalf or whether you can you know just get somebody else to take minutes or um, provide you a synopsis afterwards so yeah it does does make sense 100%. Well, thank you so much for attending the podcast and talking to me today. It's been lovely to have you on. Well, thank you very much for having me and uh, for listening to my dulcet tones. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's been really great. So thank you. Thank you for listening for the Be In Cyber podcast. If you've enjoyed today, please share with your friends. If you've got a story to share or an idea for an interesting guest, please drop us a message on all the different socials. Thanks for listening.